I spent a lot of reporting time tracking down this story. I'll be honest, it's taken much longer than I ever imagined. I'm doing this on my own, so the budget is pretty much zero. Mostly I'm investing my time and I have a day job. You're pretty much caught up. The Pendleton 14 scatter after the trials. The old case files and the newspaper stories peter out over time, and the story starts to go away. Though, that may be changing. This is Free the Pendleton 14. Before getting into what's going on with the case, I wanted to circle back to the person who really convinced me that this story was worth pursuing. I found Ricky McGilvery through his church website. He's a Pentecostal minister like his father at a church outside of Dallas. It feels like ages since we've connected. His attorney, David Weitzman, was actually able to help Ricky McGilvery more than some of the others. Remember, McGilvery had stayed behind and wasn't in the room when the fight broke out. Weitzman was able to avoid getting him thrown out of the military. McGilvery served a short sentence and stayed in the Marines until he was discharged in 1978, avoiding a dishonorable discharge. That's going to become significant in a minute. Did this shake my idea of racism? Uh, I don't think so, Steve. Uh, my neighborhood that I live on, I'm the only, I'm the only black person on my street. Okay, but you know the reason I get the respect I get on this street because I fly my Marine Corps flag high. Why I do that, Steve? I tell people all the time I was a horrible Marine, but I'm an outstanding veteran. How about that? Proud to be a Marine. I am a real deal person because I dealt with the the good, the bad, and the ugly of the Marine Corps. And guess what, Steve? I'm still standing. I'm not on the street corner. I'm not homeless. I'm not crazy. The Marine Corps shaped me in so many different ways, positive and negatively, but I'm grounded. I have a wonderful wife. I have, even though she's my second wife, but hey, I have a wonderful wife. I have great kids, great church. I believe in God. I believe in God. I believe in God. I'm good. You know, and, and when it comes to whites, just because the Bible tells me I must treat every man uh, as I treat myself. I must love every man as I love myself. So I love every man, but I don't like every man. I don't like every man. It, it's a lot of it's a lot of whites I don't like. It's a lot of blacks I don't like. You know. So you know. So did it shape me as a person? Uh, I'm proud to be a Marine. I'm proud to be a, a veteran of the Marine Corps because I made a difference, Steve. I made a it it it. it I made a sacrifice, but first of all, I made a commitment to my country that I would defend my country uh, as a Marine. Secondly, uh, I made a sacrifice to sacrifice my own life and my own well-being so that the Marine Corps that I knew then would not be the Marine Corps uh, that I was not uh, uh, enjoying. They, they, they changed. Did I have that change? I think I did. So, yes. That's the reason I fly my flag. I'm going to say that experience was unnecessary. Unnecessary. Because they they shouldn't have been that way. I mean, I, I can't say I'm glad I had that experience because 
I shouldn't have never had that experience, Steve. Never. This the this the United States government acting that way, allowing that kind of stuff. No sir. No sir. No sir. No sir. scrap of information on this case. I was researching an unrelated story when I found a short piece in the San Diego Union from August 4, 1979. It was on page 5 of the B section. The Court of Military Appeals set aside the sentence of Lance Corporal Anthony Matthews of Cleveland, Ohio. The appeals court said Matthews' rights were violated when the trial judge, Captain Anthony Redding, did not allow Matthews' attorney to question potential jurors. We know from Eddie Page's court transcript that of the 80 officers made available for his jury, only three were African-American. A spokesperson for the National Lawyers Guild, which took Matthew's case, said the Marines could retry him, but practically speaking, it was over. After the fourth episode came out, I started to get some publicity. Listeners began emailing me. The son of a reporter said he remembers his dad talking about covering David Duke when he was in San Diego. And then there's former Marine Jim McCarthy, who came to Camp Pendleton in September 1976, just a couple of months before the incident happened. There was a lot of drug abuse going on. I, I recall thinking if, if we went overseas, there'd probably be a lot of drugs. I didn't see that over there amongst any of the Marines I served with. But I did see it right away when I got Camp Pendleton. McCarthy remembers one of the Klansmen passing out flyers at formation. Until he listened to the story, he assumed command didn't know anything about the Klan being at Camp Pendleton until after the night of the incident. A retired Navy investigative service officer who had been at Camp Pendleton in the early 1970s says he remembers investigating Klan activity back then. Someone was handing out Klan flyers in Oceanside. He also recalls racial tensions running high as Marines filtered back from Vietnam, including angry confrontations between African-American Marines and white Marines. It was like they brought the Vietnam War home to California, he told me. A private investigator from L.A. reached out to me and gave me some more phone numbers to track down. Most were disconnected. I left a voicemail on the phone of Dennis Campbell, one of the Marine Klan leaders. The second time, he picked up the phone. He's living in Michigan, and he didn't want to be recorded. He told me that he left the Klan years ago. We talked for about eight minutes on a Saturday afternoon. He mostly wanted to press me on why I was bringing up this story from 1976. I want to know what side you're on. Do you want to show how the white man is still racist or how black people still get away with anything? He says he's moved on and that he has black friends now. Campbell says he thinks the entire episode should be forgotten.
Given how hard it was to locate any of the Pendleton 14, my biggest surprise was finding Eddie Page Jr. Page is from Bay Springs, Mississippi. He eventually returned home after serving just over two years in the brig. Most of his life, he worked as a laborer. He's partly disabled now, and he spends a lot of his time in a wheelchair. I have Page's transcripts from an appeal in 1986, so I already know that he is one of the African-American Marines who reported Klan activity to their commanders. I mean, it was a lot of uh, activities going on in Marine Corps at Camp Pendleton where was an organization like the Ku Klux Klan could exist in 22 areas. And the battalion commander know, and the company commander know, and all these guys know it. But, you know, I mean, they didn't try to stop it when we want to, at least when I want to, I'm told about their existence. The phone connection isn't great, but without prompting, he brings up a story that I read in his case file. When he was on guard duty, he came across a group of Klansmen who were in the pool hall on base. And uh, these guys were in the pool hall, and, uh, you know, it's kind of out the curfew. I told them guys they had to get out of here. And they got jumped up at me and told me, nigga, you don't tell us what to do. It was about, about nine, ten of white boys in there. I'm by myself. He says he kept reporting the incidents like the van with the Klan slogans scrawled on the side of it, which was parked in one of the parking lots, all the things we've talked about, and he says he was ridiculed all the way up the chain of command. So I pressed him. Did this make him afraid? Was I scared of him? Yeah. Well, of course I was, to a certain extent. I mean, if you know the history on what they do to black people, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah, of course. I can't deny that I was Page hasn't talked to any of the other African-American Marines since the trial. He's been fighting on his own for years to get rid of his bad conduct discharge. He's had no success. It feels like his whole life has been dominated by that night. Though he's not alone. He has picked up supporters in his hometown, including Pat Ballman, who runs the County Veterans Service Office in Jasper County, Mississippi. Well, I've just known him. Um, him and my brother, my younger brother, went to school together. You know, other than that, that's pretty much it. I mean, I've, you know, seen him around and, of course, been trying to help him for the past three years. Ballman's job is to help people with their veterans' benefits. Veteran service officers are actually a tremendous help to veterans around the country, helping them navigate the incredibly complex benefits process. Most of their advocacy work is done through the VA, though he helped Page compile one of his appeals to upgrade his discharge with the Marine Corps. Bauman is also state commander of the American Legion in Mississippi, which is a significant post. Oh, I think he's a real fine fellow. Uh, got a, quite a few letters that's in his file of people that wrote that he was basically a different person than what he was when he was in service and that type of stuff. Why do you think so many people are, are kind of stepping up and supporting him? What, what is it about him? It's just, to me, it's just kind of hard not to like the fella. He, he seems to go out of his way to try to help you and that type of stuff. And well, what does he do? Tell me some of the things he does. I've got a letter here from, um, well, i got one from a Reverend David Smith. got one from a Kendrick Blakeney. I've got one from the mayor of Bay Springs. What does the mayor have to say? Yeah, uh, well, he says he's the mayor, and I'm writing concerning Mr. Eddie Page, Jr. He said, I have known Eddie for approximately 20 years. The time I have known Eddie, he has been a very good individual, 
being good to help in his church, family, and community. He is well-liked by neighbors and everyone in the community. Eddie also has a smile on his face and appears to be of calm and giving nature. And this one, I got one from Donald F. Nelson. I don't know that person personally, but it says as a white ethnic American, and Mr. Page Jr. is a black ethnicity, I have never seen any bias toward any person, and I feel that whatever may have happened 30 years ago may have just been two personalities that did not get along. And I think Mr. Page Jr. should not be judged on one mistake. I mean, like I say, there, there's some good letters in here. So tell me about his case. What, is he, what have you been able to do for him? Well, we, we tried to get it, uh, you know, his discharge upgrading. Uh, there's a certain place you have to send that. Uh, there's so much paperwork here. It went to, uh, I think it's military records or whatever to upgrade. Each, each branch is different. Eddie has been trying for years to get his discharge status upgraded. About seven years ago, a group of lawyers in Mississippi created an appeal for him, though he was ultimately rejected. With Eddie's permission, Chuck sent me a bunch of paperwork from this file. He has a diagnosis of PTSD from a doctor outside of the VA. Page says he has nightmares from seeing a friend of his blown up while they were on active duty in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, before he was sent to Camp Pendleton. This feels like a stretch to me. I hadn't heard this story. But with a little digging, I found that a dozen Marines actually were blown up by landmines in Cuba. It turns out both Cuba and America laid mines after the Castro Revolution. The Cuban mines remained in place for decades. They weren't well marked and people died. Nothing paid sent me actually places him in Cuba, but it's possible. I also started doing more research on what it would take to actually upgrade Page's discharge status. In the past several years, the VA and the Pentagon have begun taking another look at veterans with so-called other-than-honorable discharges. Hundreds of thousands of people leave the military with a discharge status that doesn't allow them to qualify for the GI Bill or for VA health care. The status can haunt people for the rest of their lives, barring them from getting treatment or even a decent job. I talked to David Sunshine with Lawyers for Warriors, which runs clinics around the country to help veterans upgrade their discharge status. It's seen as one of the top firms in the country for handling discharge upgrades. He listened to the podcast and wanted to talk to Eddie Page. With Page's permission, I gave the lawyer his phone number. You know, he has a, a very sympathetic case. You know, the incident, you know, when he was in the Marine Corps, and since then, it seems like his life has just kind of, you know, spiraled from that. He's definitely got some health issues, you know, he attributes to the events from his active service. But I think overall, we can, you know, hopefully present a case showing what happened, you know, how that incident in and of itself, you know, potentially warrants uh, relief for, for Eddie, but then also showing, you know, what's happened since his, you know, discharge, you know, He's lived a good life. He has a family. I think, you know, all of that can be put forward and and hopefully uh, present a sympathetic case to the Board for Correction and Naval Records. Wow. So there you go. They want to take up the case. 
<laughs> that is a twist. You know, the Marine Corps kind of needs to take some ownership of this, you know, recognize that this was going on at Camp Pendleton at that time. The climate was there for, you know, fights and, and other things to go on between service members. You know, I think if we can show that and maybe get some recognition or understanding from the, the Navy or the Marine Corps that that was going on, then that's what will set in motion to present the other side of, you know, Eddie Page, showing that because of what happened in the Marine Corps, here's all the negative things that have happened to, to Eddie Page. And so whether that job, you know, negative job, you know, issues there, whether it's medical issues, whether there's things going on with his family. I recently was in Washington and I went to their offices on K Street, not too far from the Capitol. David showed me his own kind of cramped office. You know, client files, uh, you know, regulations, statutes, other, you know, legal. Things are piled high. Things are definitely piled high. And Why is that? That is because we are bustling with cases and, and extremely busy with, you know, helping veterans with disability benefits. So, yeah. I asked Patty Briata, the spokesperson for Lawyers for Warriors, why they even bothered to upgrade the discharges of people who may have been out of the military for decades. They become eligible for jobs they couldn't apply for before. They can get treatment they didn't have before. So when you get the other than honorable upgrade, the door open and you know we have veterans write us call us write our pro bono partners and say thank you so much you know now uh, you know I can do all these things I couldn't do before so um, you know it really does make an impact on lives it's not just getting a, a piece of paper changed to have different words on it it's really opening up opportunities um, for people to live productive lives you know suicides are rampant among veterans and employment and housing opportunities could certainly make a difference in one's mental health. I asked David, what's Eddie Page's next step? Once we, you know, get all the official records that we can get, then it's, you know, taking a look at him um, to prove that, you know, that he warrants a discharge upgrade. But I mean, I think in addition to that, it really is going to be probably multiple interviews with Eddie and seeing kind of where that takes us as far as, you know, like if he has a diagnosis for PTSD, trying to see what other veterans are out there who were also involved in the incident at Camp Pendleton and seeing if they have, you know, other than honorable discharges and seeing what their circumstances are like and how, you know, maybe their life is. Because I think when you when you talk to Eddie, you know, you realize how his life kind of did spiral down, you know, after he's gotten the honorable other than honorable discharge. And I don't know that he's for that reason and probably others that, you know, he has not really sort of been able to get over that. And so I think that there could be others out there who are in his same position. And so then it's trying to maybe, you know, show that not only is Eddie affected by this, but we have you know, X, Y and Z other veterans and maybe present their case as maybe a collective group, um, but I think if we can show maybe more of a collective group and how, you know, what happened at Camp Pendleton has really affected, you know, more than one, I don't know, we may even want to try and contact the Navy before we even file and, and see if we can, you know, work something out or else, you know, we're going to show, you know, neg something negative that is part of their past. But so in the end, it is going to take time to try and get all this, you know, moving pieces together. But um, 
I think in, you know, at some point here in the near future, we're going to be petitioning the, the Navy for this. When I started this podcast, I was surprised that the Ku Klux Klan was on a military base in Southern California, as if somehow Beach Boys music and the remnants of hippie culture could ward off racism. This wasn't the only place where I was naive. I assumed the military had gotten much better at weeding out this kind of extremism. Looking at some of the policies that were put into place in the 1970s, there have been attempts to weed out white supremacy, though... Since the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in August 2017, it's obvious these groups have not abandoned the military. ProPublica and Frontline profiled the violent white supremacist group Adam Waffen and identified three members or associates who are currently employed by the Army or Navy. Other news outlets have followed the social media trail of other white supremacists on active duty. For my day job, I talked with Admiral John Richardson, who was then Chief of Naval Operations though he has recently stepped down as head of the Navy. I told the CNO's people that I plan to cover this topic during our interview, so it's not coming out of the blue. But we're still seeing news organizations uncovering members of these groups that are in the active duty uh, services. In fact, Military Times did a survey in 2017. They said one in four members of the military had seen uh, evidence of white supremacy. What are you doing to root this out? And do do you feel you have a really high understanding of who these groups are and where they are in the military? Well, I think that uh, when we think about addressing problems like that, which uh, really go to the uh, heart and soul of what makes our Navy uh, most powerful, which is uh, harnessing all of the energy and creativity of our diverse population. You know, certainly, I mean, even the words white supremacists become uh, repulsive. And so we, for decades now, we've been very clear on our messaging that this is absolutely intolerable. Any kind of prejudicial behavior or violence towards our uh, diverse populations, or even to any sailor, right? We've got to be treating each other, you know, not only with respect, but with a kind of a welcoming aspect so that everybody feels comfortable uh, to contribute to their maximum potential. And it's only through that type of inclusion uh, of our diverse populations that we're really going to get uh, to be the most competitive Navy on the planet. So how aggressive is the Navy at, at finding people who are in these organizations? Why are we still seeing uh, news organizations who can identify these people online and then track them down and, and show that they're, they're in the military? Why isn't the military doing this? Well, I think that we are. And uh, so we really base all of ours on what we see in terms of behavior. And so, uh, as I said, our messaging has been absolutely crystal clear. If we observe any types of behaviors that are contrary to uh, the principles of inclusion and diversity, uh, then we're going to act very forcefully to uh, get to the bottom of that and uh, take whatever correction to action is necessary. You're saying it's activity, so... I mean, we've seen, I, I did a story, uh, actually a whole podcast on a story from the 1970s where the, the Ku Klux Klan was at Camp Pendleton. And there was a lot of discussion back then in the Marine Corps that, um, well, that, you know, we weren't sure that they were doing anything. Be, just being in the Klan didn't, didn't really constitute a, a threat. But since then, we've seen several times where the military has taken action in 1986, in the 90s, and in 2005. Is it still the position of the Navy that if you want to be in the Klan or 
Adam Waffen or, or any of the other neo-Nazi groups that you can be in there as long as you don't do any sort of um, clan activity while you're in uniform? See, that, that's, that's kind of a ridiculous question. And so, uh, you know, I'm not going to comment on what might have happened in the 70s. I think I've made our position clear in terms of our modern approach and our current approach to that. No, what uh, I, I think I'll just leave it. No, at no, that. no, no. What I'm asking you is, can you be a yes, member? Yes, yes. Can you still be a member of these groups, as long as you don't do anything? As long as you don't have any evidence that you've burned a cross or anything? Or, or are these groups banned from the military at this point? After all of these years, are they banned? Uh, you know, we're going to continue to focus on the behaviors that are involved, and so yeah, I, like I said, I think I've outlined our position pretty clearly. Um, do you feel that the commanders have? I mean, if somebody, if you've got one in four uh, troops saying that they have, they've seen white supremacy, and then they do refer that up to the chain of command, do you have the the resources? Does that commander have the resources to be able to actually decide whether or not this is something he has to take action on? What do you deal with this holistically? Do, is there someone? who's an expert in this, in the Navy? Do the services even work together to try to identify these groups? Steve, let me just say that, uh, you know, there is, uh, you can't be a member of any type of extremist organization and be in the Navy, okay? And I think that all the services have this same approach. And uh, you know, we're dialing in to make sure that uh, you know, we'd have no uh, uh, participation, even passive uh, in those types of organizations, and uh, certainly any type of uh, extremist behavior that uh, goes against uh, our core values and our principles of inclusion and diversity, uh, we're going to act on very quickly. Do you feel this is a growing problem? Uh, we're seeing more and more evidence, both inside and outside of the military, that the, these groups are and their activity is on the rise. Do you see this as a growing problem? Uh, I'll tell you what, uh, whether it's you know growing or shrinking, it's something that we're keeping a very close eye on, and we're going to uh, stamp it out wherever we see it. Zero tolerance is uh, our position on this, and so we have to move towards that. For a second, he says they don't have the authority to take action unless somebody acts out. Then he backtracks. He actually calls me on my cell phone later to make his position clear. A service member cannot belong to groups tied to white supremacy. After membership in the Klan and other groups was banned in 1986 by the Secretary of Defense, the military confronted troops belonging to white supremacist groups in 1995. After soldiers from Fort Bragg, North Carolina, who had white supremacist ties, killed an African-American couple. The prohibitions were strengthened in 2009 and 2012 when the Pentagon updated its guidance to ban troops who post on racist websites and in chat rooms. Rooting out people who belong to hate groups remains a dilemma for commanders on the ground. They're confronted by a host of new hate groups, which are far beyond the KKK. These groups splinter and reform while they seek new members online. Military service is attractive to many of these groups, even if it's just the status of being a vet, making the military a potential target. I'm told commanders on the ground don't always feel they have the resources to make the call on what's prohibited. So for right now, that's where I'm going to leave it. We may be able to locate more of the 14. I'll keep producing episodes as the lawyers move forward with the process of upgrading their discharges. I'll know more about the military's response when that happens. We'll call that Season 2. In the meantime, thanks for sticking with us. 
I'm your host, Steve Walsh, and this has been Free the Pendleton 14. 